Welcome to The Fix Podcast. On our show, we talk about changes to your daily habits to improve your quality of life, not just for yourself, but your family as well. I'm your host, Dr. Sean Robeck. Let's get started. Today, I have a special guest, Sue Falzoni is on our show. Uh, She is a close personal friend of mine. We met in middle school in Buffalo, New York. We lost touch after uh, we both left Buffalo. And uh, 30 years later, here we are in the same field. And uh, she's on our show today to talk about her journey out of school, out of Buffalo to Arizona and into working with the Dodgers and what she's currently doing now with both her concierge practice and her structure and function education company. Sue, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Anything for my lifelong childhood friend. (laughs) And what she means by that is that Sue and I went to middle school together at Hoover Elementary in Buffalo, New York, and uh, we were best of friends. And um, unfortunately, in Buffalo, uh, in middle school, you actually part ways. You split the school and then you go to either Kenmore West or Kenmore East. And the friendships you had in middle school that you thought would be lifelong and almost like instantaneously. And then it was also back in the eighties. So there was like no cell phones. Like you might as well have moved to a different state if you went to a different high school. Right. And if you were lucky enough to cross town, you'd be like, Oh my God, there's Kenmore West. You'd only go there if you played the football game, you had a football game. So, and that felt so far away. Uh, but what happened was Sue, um, went down a path of, uh, healthcare. She became a doctor of physical therapy. Um, first started off as an athletic trainer and I, um, my journey, uh, started as a chiropractor as far as getting into healthcare and 30 years later, Sue's, we, we crossed paths again. And so we were treating some <laughs> mutual patients and, um, I randomly moved to Arizona and my friend, our mutual friend, Frank Rondinelli, uh, told me, he's like, you know, Sue lives in Arizona. I'm like, Falzoni. (laughs) (laughs) So we got together, uh, and we have start, we started like we, 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 we never left each other. Right. It was like middle school all over again. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Cause you know, a lot of times you lose touch with someone for 30 years. It's, it's for a reason. Right. And the two of us were like, we're so happy to be back together. (laughs) And like, I don't think we've stopped hanging out since like the minute we saw each other. (laughs) Yes. And I hope it, I hope we continue this way. Uh, but you know, the minute you open the door and I saw your smile, I'm like, you haven't changed a bit, (laughs) um, but it's just so rewarding to, um, have this friendship and be in the same field or similar fields and also have the same core values and work ethic. Uh, and how we care for patients and ultimately what we want to do for younger generations so they can learn from us and not have to beat up um, or have to plow through the same barriers that we may have had to go through based on lack of information or let's just be honest, ignorance. Right. <laughs> so my purpose in life outside of helping patients get better is helping younger gra- or graduates um, not make the same dumb mistakes that I made in the past. And I think it's valuable for us where we're in our mid forties and uh, we're in a different phase of our career that we can help these people. And so we have Sue Falzoni on the show so she can share her story about how she got started and maybe some of the things she's really proud of that she've, she has accomplished. Um, but most importantly, I hear about some things that she wished she never did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That the stuff I wish I never did, uh, is probably a longer podcast <laughs> than the quote unquote great stuff I've done. <laughs> Do you mind get starting with, uh, um, like your, uh, where you started at Damon and then how you uh, move forward from there? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Um, I actually started with physical therapy Um, And actually have my bachelor's degree in physical therapy, which just goes to show how old I am because you can't even obtain a bachelor's in physical therapy anymore. That's not a thing. Uh, So yeah, I'm super old. Did the whole uh, undergraduate physical therapy thing. So I I was young when I became licensed and started working. I was 22 years old, a licensed healthcare practitioner, helping patients, just, you know, barely knew barely was legal to drink. Right. And here I am like, helping, helping patients and being an autonomous healthcare practitioner. Um, and then, yeah, I was working in an outpatient clinic in North Carolina and then was working with an athletic trainer there. Her name was Karen Tanner. 
And she just was so, um, she was just an incredible woman and a fantastic athletic trainer. And I was like, what is this athletic training thing? And so she really educated me to what that was. And so I went back to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and uh, they had a double major program where you could major in human movement science, but also have a concentration in sports medicine, which meant I went down the curriculum athletic training path. And at the time, athletic training had just switched from an internship program to an actual curriculum program. Now athletic training this year has just switched from a bachelor's to a master's degree. So have been through the <laughs> multiple changes in the athletic training degree as well. Um, and so, yeah, I became a certified athletic trainer in 2000. So I've been an athletic trainer for 21 years and have worked in a variety of settings, which I'm sure we'll kind of talk about as we go. But, um, but yeah, that's really kind of how it all got started. And well, thank you for correcting me. I thought it was the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it typically is the opposite, but right. shockingly I did it the opposite way of normal people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Most people <laughs> will go to athletic training school first and then do the physical therapy thing second. And I, of course, did it the opposite way. Of course you as did. Of course I did. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned you, you've, you well, you were practicing at 22 years of age. Yeah. And uh, I graduated at 24. And the first thing that I realized when I graduated was like, I'm way too young yeah. to, to practice. I felt so insecure. And so just, I wasn't ready. I, I felt like I was in school for, I was in school for eight years. And then I left. I'm like, I'm supposed to put my hands on patients and get them better. I felt like a child, to be honest with you. And yeah. it created a lot of, I don't want to say insecurity, but I just knew that to get to the point where I wanted to go, there's so much more growth that had to take place. Uh, and, um, a lot of growth did take place over the years right. and it's still taking place for me. <laughs> right. And, and I think Sue, you and I, um, we growing up, growing up in Buffalo, it's, it's a blue collar town and it's, um, it's a school of hard knocks. Yeah. Uh, and you really just do and hope for the best and fail and overcome. And, uh, and I think there's a lot of, uh, positive behind that and that type of, um, I guess you can call it culture. Uh, that's, I, I didn't have a mentor when I first graduated. And that was one of the things that really stalled me out. Uh, when you were going through your journey, was there somebody that you had ideas to bounce off of and have guidance? Yeah, that that's a great point because I, and I think one of the biggest things I tell young graduates is I know when you're coming out of school and you're in tons of debt, that $5,000 seems like a lot of money. So when you're, you're facing a job that like one person's going to give you 70,000 and another person's going to give you 75, your gut instinct right. is to take the extra $5,000 because right. it seems like it's a lot. Yep. But after, you know, taxes and Medicare and all of the things, it really ends up not being that much. Right. And so to really look at that mentorship and sort of what situation you're going into. And for me, I was very lucky. My first job um, at Proactive Physical Therapy, which doesn't exist anymore in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, I my first boss was a guy named Matt Marin, who I'm still friends with to this day. Um, and he was such a fantastic first boss because he really made me think through things. He made me um, just not question, but but question why I was doing things. It was never just to apply the modality or to apply the exercise. It was, why are you doing those things? And, and what is that, what does that person need? And, and, and really some, um, a whole patient care. Like I'll never forget. There was this one time when it was just the two of us, we kind of worked staggered, staggered days. So we would work four and a half days. And so the, some of those days were long. And so we had one time where Matt and I were working till, I don't know, six or seven at night. We were the only two clinicians in the clinic. And he had a patient who was contemplating suicide to the point where she, she had means, she had mode, she had a method, she had explained everything she was going to do, was in a major mental health crisis. And, you know, the responsibility that came along with that that night. And we ended up being in the clinic till about 9.30 or 10 o'clock until we got her services and got her placed in an inpatient care facility. And so, you know, during that time, I, I've got a really complicated low back patient. 
that I'm knocking on his door, asking him questions about back pain. And I could just see his face. He was like, Sue, I have a really serious situation that I'm dealing with here. And I'm like, yeah, but my patient with back pain, because I was so immature, right? I didn't understand. So like you said, you felt like a child, even not just with your hands, but just emotionally. And so that night I just learned so much about what it was to not just take care of someone's back pain, but to take care of the patient as a whole and how he really sort of walked through both of those situations with me as a mentor, as a boss, as treating the whole patient, mind, body, and spirit with that person. And, and sort of, yeah, I'll just, I'll never forget that night. And yeah, again, I was 22 years old when that happened. And, yeah. and it really shaped me as a clinician and how we're dealing with so many things beyond the physical. I'm like, <laughs> you can, can you see yeah, the, the you, goosebumps? Yes, so right? it's real because that is, that, uh, that's such, it's so well said. How long would it have taken you to, to learn that without that experience? Maybe right. it's when you're 27, that's five years of like being held back from that type of responsibility, because that is our responsibility to be, uh, to be that person that understands the whole body and not just simply look at the pain. It's not look at like their, like I <laughs> simply say, I'm this person can't, can't walk down the block. There's so much more going on and you have to listen and identify what's truly happening to this human being so you can treat the body as a whole. Right. Um, And it was really incredible that he, you know, any other boss could have just been, you know, Sue beat it. I don't have time for you and your back pain patient and or Sue beat it. I'm not going to bring you into this experience that is really going to be helpful to you and how to manage someone who's in a mental health crisis in the middle of your clinic. And so, you know, to, to have someone who had such foresight and insight to be able to mentor me through all of those experiences at the time really, really shaped me as a clinician. And that's just one example of the things that Matt did, which brings me back around to say that the $5,000 difference for you in that initial salary doesn't matter. Right. Who is your mentor? Who is your boss? What situation are you going into I mean, that is what's going to shape your career. And Matt Marin, I know most of you probably have never heard that name. And I owe my career path to Matt Marin in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. There is a, I I want our listeners, especially our new graduates that are coming out, looking at these contracts. Uh, Some of these contracts are very enticing. They're enticing for a reason. And sometimes you get stuck in those enticing contracts for a lifetime and there can be less enticing contracts with the right mentor that's going to guide you for the rest of your life and walk shoulder to shoulder with you, regardless if you're working with them or not. And that is value. And that's priceless, actually. Uh, Totally priceless. I mean, think about like, you know, looking back at my career now, I wouldn't have had the same career if I didn't work at that clinic with those people, right. And met an athletic trainer, Karen and, and worked with her side by side and had Matt as my mentor. I mean, my entire career path, I dare say would not be anywhere near what it had been if I didn't work in that clinic. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's get into why the hell are you in Arizona? (laughs) (laughs) Because I broke up with a a boyfriend of seven years and thought my life was over and (laughs) Put all my stuff in a, in a truck. And of course it was over at early course, 20s. Of course, right? I was 24 <laughs> years old. My life was over. My college boyfriend and I broke up and, you know, I just had to move far, far away. And my friend said if I moved somewhere warm, she would move with me. So we picked Arizona. It's incredible. It's <laughs> <laughs> incredible. I pulled off the first exit that said Phoenix City Limits. Uh, we got an apartment for six months. I, Yeah worked at an outpatient orthopedic clinic three days a week. We, you know, partied four days a week. I think I lit, I literally came out here with about $2,000 in my pocket. I mean, I had nothing, I had literally nothing, but was what was in that truck? I had a brand new Jeep Wrangler and I had about two grand. And you still have that Jeep. And I still have that Jeep. (laughs) I do. And I I just restored it last summer. That was one of my COVID projects to kind of restore the Jeep. It looks great. You're uh, (laughs) <laughs> this is why, you know, the people listening to this show right now, I'm, I'm sure they saw our teaser. They're listening to Sue Falzoni. I need to listen to this. Um, the, uh, but the reality is, is you're a human too. Sometimes it's <laughs> like, there's this like on a pedestal thing. And you and I spoke about pedestals are the worst thing to put people on, yeah. uh, 
take me off the pedestal. <laughs> and the reality is, is that, you know, you made these decisions, you made these emotional choices, irrational choices, uh, choices based on emotion and heartbreak. And it brought you to certain places, but you know, there's probably good that has happened and bad that has happened, but you, you said, you know, you overcame the bad and made it work. Uh, were there any challenges that you've experienced coming out here, not knowing anybody, um, or was it just smooth sailing out of the gates? Yeah, no, it was <laughs> definitely not smooth sailing. You know, I think one of the things too, that I knew after I left grad school, and I think this is another important lesson for young graduates is I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I was a PT and I remember actually sitting, this is going to sound so dorky, but I, I am a total dork and we all know it. So, um, but I remember being in PT school and sort of writing my name with all the letters that I wanted. Right. And I didn't want the letters because I just wanted the letters. I wanted the letters because they meant something to me. And so, but I kind of visualized that and sort of had like this vision of what I wanted to do. And so, you know, being an athletic trainer, I didn't really know what that was, but I thought, you know, I, I maybe I wanted to go into sports or orthopedics. I don't know. So anyway, like I had gotten this PT degree, right? And then I had gotten this athletic training degree and I had gotten my strength and conditioning certification and, you know, I had gotten my master's degree. So I kind of had started to kind of collect these certifications and things that, that meant something to right. me, right? And so, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with all of that stuff. I just knew that, that those were the educational things that I wanted and where that was going to take me. I had no idea. Um, so I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And I often tell young people, knowing what you don't want to do is just as, if not more valuable than knowing what you want to do, right? Because I think people come out of school and they think, oh, I've got to have it all planned out. And there's, it's impossible to have it all planned out. So if you just know where you don't want to go, right. sometimes that takes you down a path where you do want to go without knowing it, right? It's a little kind of backwards, but that tends to be how I think. And so, you know, I knew I didn't want to work in outpatient orthopedics. I had done that. It wasn't what exactly what I thought it was. I had done the college sport thing. I really enjoyed that, but I didn't necessarily think that that's where I wanted to be either. So of course, what's the first thing I do when I come out here? I take a job at an outpatient orthopedic clinic. And, and but I needed to, because at the end of the day, you need to pay rent, you need to have some food on your table and, and you, you know, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. So, and it was a fantastic clinic and still the, the people that I met at that clinic at physiotherapy in Mesa, Arizona, um, you know, I still talk to these people today. Um, Carrie Blackburn, Shannon Smith, Tyler Ritchie, like these are people, Rob Pace, people that I continue to speak to and continue to, to be present in my life, which is awesome. And so, um, yeah, it was really about the people, but I knew I didn't want to be there forever. And so when this opportunity came up at Athletes Performance, um, it, it was an interesting opportunity. Yeah. Sue, that's so well said. There was a time, the time when I graduated, I had no idea I was going to be a functional medicine practitioner, have wellness plans and programs for clients. I thought I was going to be a chiropractor taking care of pain and structural injury and getting people back on the field faster. Uh, and now we actually have, we're doing regenerative medicine as well. And so what's amazing about being an entrepreneur as well as getting our degrees is that the world's our oyster. And then we can really identify um, as we evolve and grow, add more tools to our toolbox to not just enhance the quality of care that we give to our patients, but explore our brain and enjoy life and get creative and not get stuck in the mundane uh monotonous world of doing the same thing every single day. And you do not do the same thing every single day. Uh, you know, you're sure very, don't. you're very unique. Uh, our listeners obviously know you specifically for, well, for a number of things, but predominantly being in baseball, uh, being the first woman head athletic trainer of any professional sport of all time. Uh, and that's remarkable, uh, for many reasons, but it, it wasn't like you just came to Arizona and next thing you know, you got a job with the Dodgers. So right. how does that happen? Yeah. You know, and I think it's so funny because so many young professionals say that to me too. Like I want to be, 
I want to work with a pro sports team. And I just always remind people, I mean, I graduated from PT school in 1996, which sounds really gross to say 1990 (laughs) something. But I mean, I graduated PT school from 1996. My first job in professional sport was 2007. I was out for nine years before I got an opportunity in professional sport. And I think people just need to remove, and I mean, I'm not saying don't have goals, but like remove that expectation that you're going to graduate from school and walk into working for a pro sport team or being the head of sport science or the head of anything. Right. And quite frankly, if someone offers you a job of head of something right when you walk out of school, you need to really question that because I think a lot of really experienced, well-deserving people probably said no to that job for a reason. And and yeah, it just makes no sense. Right. So, I mean, I didn't even get a consulting job with the Dodgers until 2007 and I didn't become the head athletic trainer until 2012. So, you know, do the math there. I mean, it was a very long time before I had that opportunity. And so again, just remove that expectation. You're not going to walk out of school and get your dream job. You're probably going to have a lot of jobs along the way, like I said, that have taught you tons of lessons because that first job in Raleigh, North Carolina, that's really, I I really learned about treating the whole patient, mind, body, spirit. When I worked at that clinic in um, Mesa, Arizona, I learned so much about, like I worked with some um, amputee patients. I worked with some spinal cord patients. I worked with patients that were sort of beyond the demographic that I really thought I wanted to work with. Right. And when, and all of those things really helped me when I did start to work in sports. And so when I started to work for athletes performance in 2001, which again, I walked into Mark's door, uh, Mark Verstegen, who's the owner of athletes performance. It's now known as Exos. I started volunteering. And I mean, I volunteered my time two to three days a week from April of 01 until finally Mark offered me a job in September of 01. So, I mean, I volunteered for a good six months before I even got that job there. And so, again, sometimes you've you've got to go knocking on some doors. Sometimes you've got to donate your time. And the minute I walked in that door, I knew that that was where I wanted to be. I didn't even really understand what they were doing. I mean, now sport performance stuff is everywhere, but 20 years ago, I mean, we really coined the term performance physical therapy. We coined that term performance coach, right? We moved away from strength coach and and coined that term performance coach. And so that was 20 years ago. And, um, you know, like I said, I didn't know what was happening in those walls, but I knew I wanted to be a part of it and I was going to do everything in my power to be a part of it. And so, but I was still learning lessons at my other job while I was volunteering there for, for Mark. And so when I was there at Athletes Performance, you know, I was working with athletes in the off season typically. And so I did work with a lot of baseball players there. And so got very into baseball and football. We worked mostly with golf and tennis and football, baseball, not so much basketball, some hockey for sure, but just really became a student of the sport. You know, I was not a good athlete um, ever. I was terrible. And um, really had to study sport and and really learned it from my athletes and clients. And so when the opportunity, right, as the saying goes, luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. I was preparing, little did I know, for the opportunity that would eventually present itself as the person who would sort of manage the Dodger client for athletes performance because the Dodgers had approached athletes performance to sort of help with their injury management type things. And so it kind of became my account for a lack of a better way to put it, where I was sort of the athletes performance person that was managing that relationship. And it organically grew over time until what it eventually became, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. I think I, I believe that it's important for as a provider to be able to treat as much as possible because it would all, it'll all um, be utilized when you actually get to the point where you find your true niche. Uh, but if you come out of school and, and my mindset was like, I want to treat professional athletes, even though I never really met one in my life when I was in school, but it was just it sounded so cool to treat professional athletes. And I got to that point in my career, um, but it was anticlimactic when I got to that point. And I was very thankful that I went through probably a decade before I actually got my hands on a, an elite athlete or professional athlete, but all the work I did prior 
if I wouldn't have been able to treat that athlete the way I did, where there would be referrals and success afterwards without being putting myself in positions to, to learn how to treat almost everything. Um, and so thank you for sharing that part of it. Yeah, Don't- that's a huge point. And I say that to people a lot too, because yeah, well, I have this like kind of interesting concierge practice now where I travel with guys and, you know, just sort of take care of people at a very deep level. And I have five or six patients, but you know, I haven't, if those five or six patients don't have an elbow injury, then I've just gone the last year and haven't treated somebody's elbow. Now that's not a problem for me as I'm 26, 25 years into my career. If I'm year one in my career and I haven't ever treated somebody's elbow, that's a problem. And so you have to have quantity. You have to know what a normal ACL rehab is like. You have to know what a normal course of nonspecific low back pain is. You have to know what a normal course of, um, you know, a rib injury is. You have to have these sets of normals to reference so that when something is abnormal in the process, you don't need to know what it is, but you need to recognize that something is abnormal in the healing process here and, and you need to figure that out. But if you don't have a reference for normal... How can you ever identify abnormal? Well said. That's a whole nother show. Yeah, it really <laughs> right? is, right? Yeah. But, you, but yeah, I think kind of going back to that point of you think you come out and you want to have this very specific population. Yeah, and, and I did too, right? Like I had always told my mom I wanted to work for the Buffalo Bills, <laughs> right? Like who growing up in Buffalo didn't want to work for the Buffalo Bills, right? right? We all did. <laughs> Um, and like you said, I never even met a professional <laughs> athlete before. Like I had no frame of reference for what that meant. Yep. But it was, again, I graduated in 96. I didn't start working with a professional athlete until 2001. It was five years before I put my hands on a quote unquote professional athlete. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I wasn't prepared for that opportunity. I was very prepared because of all of the experiences I had had before. A good example uh, for me would be I I started working in the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista in 2008. Thought I was going to be working on high-level athletes. And I was. I was working on distance runners, uh, the throwers, and a few, uh, a few sprinters. Uh, but then one day I was working with the Paralympians. I'm like, well, this is new. Uh, but I was able to adapt and overcome based on past experiences. You worked with amputees. Um, you know, all those experiences prepare you. And without them, you may be looking off into space with uh, confused eyes, wondering what you're going to do without embracing those past experiences. And thankfully for me, I was able to adapt and overcome from that experience. Uh, and so the uh, reality is don't ever say no to an opportunity that presents itself that you think you can learn from. But be very cautious of opportunities that might put you in a state where there's a lack of growth or development and it's your job to navigate that. And the best way you can navigate that is by really understanding the core value of the person that will be coaching you or being your supervisor or horrible word boss. Uh, but if their core values are on point um, and they resonate with yours, you're going to find yourself a mentor and you're going to grow and develop in the way in which uh, hopefully you want. Uh, I think our listeners, I know our listeners want to know what, um, what it's like to work for the Dodgers and being such an intricate piece of the puzzle for that team for so many years. Um, how was that? Yeah, it was a great experience. You know, I was with the team in a growing role from 2007 till, uh, the end of 2013. So, um, about seven seasons and it, it was a, it was a fantastic experience. It was a challenging experience on a lot of levels. Some of, some of the most challenging professional things I've ever had to deal with on a lot of different levels, which again is probably a whole nother show. Uh, but my overarching feeling when I look back on that time is an unbelievable experience. I mean, something that I could never have even scripted or written or, or tried to manifest because I just didn't even know what, yeah. you know, what it would be like. And so, yeah, I just have fantastic fond memories of that time and um, the people I worked with both as colleagues as well as athletes and patients. And um, yeah, just, it was, it was really incredible, but you know, it's, it's not as glamorous as everybody thinks, you know, it's, it's long days, it's 14 hour days. It's a 12 hour day if everything goes right yeah. 
it's a longer day if something doesn't go right. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know, anything from taking care of a blister to filling water bottles to cleaning whirlpools to doing laundry to treating really complicated patients mm-hmm. to, yeah, standing on, you know, the third baseline during a playoff game and, and seeing, um, you know, national anthem. I mean, it, there are bits of, of glory that are really, really cool, right? right? But there's also, it, it's not all just what you see on TV. There's some really unglamorous parts of, of working right. with a professional organization that people don't really see. The, you're, there, you're, you have so many friends uh, from that experience. I've, I, I'm with you quite a bit now. So it's, you have all these people that look at you like a, a friend forever. And so that shows your imp, the impact you made on these people while you were there. And also the athletes you're currently treating. Uh, and it's, I don't think it's even a 14 hour job at point. It's a 24 hour job. These right. people are all, they, they rely on you. They, you become, if I can use this term, you become a mother figure for them. Absolutely. And uh, that never ends. And, and when they need you, you have to be there. A hundred percent. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely, it's a 14 hour in-person job. It's absolutely a 24 hour day job. I mean, I would have guys call me at three in the morning at two in the morning at, you know, whether it was, something that they needed or something that their family member needed. They didn't call 911. They called me and I would say, you need to call 911. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on my way, but your next phone, I'm going to call 911 and send them to you. You know, there were a couple, couple kind of crazy incidences. And so, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And and I have no problem. I mean, uh, you know, you're right. You kind of do become like a, a mother figure to them. You take care of them when they're sick right? You take care of everything about them when they're not feeling well, when they're sick. And so what that, you know, what that means and, and yeah, you're taking care of people way beyond their ankle sprain. Right. I have the, I have the privilege of co-treating with you from time to time. And that honestly is one of my most fun times of the week. It's, it's great to be able to share with, share my school of thought with your school of thought and, and blend our techniques together uh, to try to help people to get, help people get better. Uh, what I've noticed is that, you know, when you, I have a, I, I have an insider view on, on who you are and how you care for a person and, and your empathy, uh, sometimes sympathy for, and compassion for an individual. Uh, and what Sue does, which is remarkable, and this is what every provider uh, listening really, um, I believe must adapt. It's not a should, but a must adapt is, is listening. Uh, it's not about you telling people what you know. It's about listening to their to them, hearing their story, not just hearing it, but actively taking it in and understanding, and then treating from that perspective. Treating from a perspective, asking your OPQRST or whatever it is that you're supposed to be asking as far as history questions, and then go after the pain generator, if we're able to actually find that, uh, is, you know, it's superficial care. And what I see with you is that um, empathy and compassion and you're 26 years out of practice. And you would think that at this point, it's like, just go through the motions. I know what I'm doing. However, when you get to this level of care, that's when we start to realize what true treatment actually is. And it really comes down to understanding who that person is that's in front of you and treating them accordingly. So moving forward from our conversation about the Dodgers and now you having your concierge practice, um, how has your practice changed as a result of having um, this type of relationship with the client? Yeah, that, that was really, really well said. And I think that when people, uh, you know, I do grand rounds. I'm also a professor um, in the um, athletic training programs at AT Still University. And um, I primarily teach in the doctorate program, but I also guest lecture within the master's programs. And so um, I do grand rounds with them where we go through complicated um, cases and patients. And so we kind of talk about how my practice, kind of bringing it back around to how my practice has changed. And, you know, when we go through these complicated cases, we always kind of laugh because I think people think that I have like these magical superpowers of manual therapy and needling and like all of the things like these tangible skills. 
And really, I mean, my, the students are so shocked because it's so fundamental and so basic, like my objective exam and my interventions, like they're really not that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always say the best part of my exam is my subjective because I let people tell their story the way they want to tell it. Not the way I want to, them to tell it, right? I let like listen to that again, right? I let people tell their story the way they want to tell it. And I get that there are constraints to time. I mean, the beauty of my concierge practices is I try not to have a constraint of time, meaning that first meeting with someone, I don't schedule anything after. If I'm going to schedule a new patient at one o'clock, like that's my afternoon. Now, granted, I don't think it's going to take four hours, but you never know. Someone might want to tell their story for 45 minutes. Someone might want to tell their story for five minutes. I let them tell it the way they want to tell it. And I try not to lead them down. I try to ask very open-ended questions. So then, and I really don't say much. When you don't say much, people will talk. And instead of asking them a whole bunch of yes, no questions or questions that, that like lists, like, okay, what have you done to treat this? What have you right? What have you seen? What type of medications are you on? Yes, you need, you need to get all that information. I'm not saying you don't, but you know, very like, you know, what do you feel? You've, you've seen a lot of practitioners. What do you feel like have really, has really helped? What if you feel hasn't helped, you know, and, and try to just get them and, and they'll just start talking. You know, you ask them one question and they answer 10 questions, nine of which you haven't even asked yet. So just let people tell their story. And I think, for me, that's really where I'm at right now is I listen a lot because in our day and age of healthcare, practitioners don't take the time to listen, right? Physicians, I think what's the recent study that came out that's like, I think a physician spends on average like four minutes with their patients or something like that, right? So people are being shuffled in and out of different practitioners. Everybody's busy. Nurses come in, take their vitals, boom, in and out, in and out. Like my mom just had, you know, a tumor removed. I'm sure she'd be super thrilled that I'm telling everybody about her medical health care. Um, but you know, her surgeon, her surgeon was great, but like he came in, made sure she was good left and the nurse did the rest of it. Right. I mean, she barely had time to talk to her surgeon. And so I think that's really where the power comes in now in my practice is really being that healthcare practitioner that is allowing the patient to tell their story the way they want to tell it for the first time. That's right. You, uh, people talk about the 80, 20 rule. I, I believe there's a 90, 10 rule. If you're speaking 10% of the time and the patient's speaking 90% of the time, you're winning. And, uh, there's a gentleman in 2002 that I met. His name was David Klein. He was a chiropractor. And the one thing I got from him was that the, the power of asking open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. And it was quite remarkable when I just simply start learn that technique, which took me a while, to be honest with you. I would practice with friends, family, patients. And it was once I got it, um, you really started to understand people. You're really good at that, actually. Thank you. Yeah, I've listened. Like you said earlier, we have gotten the chance to co-treat a lot lately, which has been just wonderful for me in the last year. Talk about positives of COVID, Um, right? It's been nice to be able to co-treat and kind of be in your presence in the clinic. And you're, yeah, yeah, that's a skill you're really good at. Thank you. Uh, It's when I've, I think it's an important skill as a human, not just a practitioner to, to listen. Um, It makes life a lot easier when you can listen and not talk about yourself. (laughs) And when you sit there and you, if you're asking yes or no questions, or you're talking about your story to somebody else, you're basically using that person as a therapist, but we're therapists. Nobody wants to hear your story unless it's very relatable to them. And you're trying to prove a point. It's not your time to talk. It's their time. And if you're co-treating with somebody and they're talking about something that's happening outside the window, you're distracting from that patient's experience. And so it's an, it's a, with all, let's say you're working in a group environment with a team of providers, everybody has to be on the same page that the experience is for the patient in front of them. And there's no distractions. We're not talking about what's going to happen on the weekend that has nothing to do with that person's care. And it takes a while to understand that, uh, but that's what evolution as a provider is all about. And uh, that's where success comes. You'd be amazed at how much better people get physically when you're there to listen to them and they, and you understand them. 
And I think see with, um, I'm putting words in your mouth. I can only speculate that as you're going through your career, you couldn't believe that certain player X or certain person Y would be crying on your shoulder. I'm pretty sure they weren't crying on your shoulder because you're asking them yes, no questions. Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. I vividly, yeah. I've had a lot of players, men cry like physically and you're right. It's because you form that bond and you know, there's a couple instances where, you know, people have been either re-injured or something happened and, you know, we're both sitting there in the locker room or, you know, in a, like, and just crying and just allowing that to happen, right. Without judgment and without, you know, without anything associated with it other than being there for that person. And, um, yeah, you're right. Those, those bonds don't happen by, by asking yes or no questions and kind of having that 15 minute time constraint on your schedule. Now I get the realities of the world, Mm -hmm. um, and of a lot of clinics. And so, you know, that is hard. And I think that for younger clinicians, if you are in a busy clinic where you've got people coming in every 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, A, I think you need to kind of figure out if that's the place for you long-term. I think, again, there is value in those places um, for a lot of different reasons, especially as a younger clinician, which we talked about earlier. There's a value when you're younger to see quantity. There's a huge value in that. Um, but you know, maybe that's a stepping stone to your next space or to your next thing, right? Every experience kind of provides you with something else. And so, you know, those experiences can, um, can be very valuable in their own right, but then just kind of realize that, yeah, there's more, there's a different depth of patient care. There's a different depth of human care, um, that you may or may not want to strive for. Um, you know, some people don't want to strive for that level of care. Um, you know, and that it's just different than how I want to be a healthcare provider. There's no, there's a place for everybody. Sure. You just have to find that place. You know, there, I will say this is that when you're as a new practitioner coming out or if you're seasoned, um, when you get to a point where somebody cries in front of you, you've done a great job. It's you've, you've, if they're going to be vulnerable enough to, to give themselves to you as a practitioner that's listening to them, you should pat yourself on the back. You've done good work. Um, uh, and especially when it comes to elite athletes, uh, these people, they have feelings too. And oftentimes they are expected to be superheroes, but never expected to be vulnerable or weak. And when they know they're in a safe zone and they can be, um, it's something that is a skill and it's, uh, you should be proud of. So again, I think coming full circle, when you leave school, you're expected to ask all these questions to get this data so you can treat the way you're coached to treat at school. And um, not to say you should just strip that from you, but remember you're speaking to a human and a human needs to talk about themselves. Speaking about themselves, let's talk about you creating structure and function and <laughs> structure and function um, has a big part of my life. I've, you've, you're, you've uh, taught me how to dry needle and uh, it's a big part of our practice when you're not in our office treating. <laughs> so uh, how did that start and where do you see it going? Yeah, it, it really kind of came out of, um, yeah, you know, I left the Dodgers. I had left Athletes Performance. Um, I had worked for the U.S. Men's National Team for a little while and sort of, you know, once all of that stuff kind of went away, I was like, where, where am I now? And what do I want to do? And so I had started teaching dry needling for, um, for, uh, another company and, um, had the opportunity about five years ago to have my own education company. And so we definitely started off as a dry needling education company, but now we're just an education company, which is really my, was my goal and my hope. Um, and so, yeah, now we offer everything kind of surrounding my book, Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance. Um, we are the partners um, in the United States for the Fascial Manipulation Institute for the Steccos, um, who are based out of Italy. We are talking about some um, manipulation and mobilization courses with one of my very good friends, Dr. Robeck. <laughs> And I'm putting it out there in the universe. So that way we have to do it. It's an honor. 
it's going to be really great. It's going to be really great. We've got some really, really cool things planned. And so I think for me, where I see structure and function going, right, where it started, it was a dry needling education company. And where it's going is exactly what my practice is and my utopia of a practice is, which is where everybody is learning together in a room. You know, I think that class that you came to, you know, we had athletic trainers, we had physical therapists, we had acupuncturists, we had chiropractors. I think we had a physician, right? We have all of these people in one room learning together in the best interest of the patient. My philosophy is very patient, athlete, human. Those are all the same words to me, um, human centric. And so we leave our letters at the door and how do we come together as healthcare providers? And I include strength and conditioning in healthcare because prevention is just as much of a part as rehabilitation as anything. And so to me, a strength coach is absolutely a healthcare provider, whether they're classified that way or not. In my world, they are. And so I want all of these people learning together as much as possible. So we leave our letters at the door, keep our patients and our, and our humans at the center. And so it's not just about dry needling or about manual therapy or about, um, you know, we've got a nutrition course. And so, you know, how do all of these things come together? Because I think people tend to confuse their tools and philosophies, right? Like my philosophy, and, and you're not going to develop your philosophy at age 24. You know, it took me a while to develop my treatment philosophy. My treatment philosophy, though, once I figured it out, is very simple. It's to restore and maintain the homeostatic balance of my patient. That's it. Whether that's it's biomechanical, bioneural, biochemical, biopsychosocial, doesn't matter. To restore and maintain the homeostatic balance of my patient. I can do that with a needle. I could do that with my hands. I can do that through listening. I can do that with a kettlebell. All of those things are tools that I use to express my philosophy. And so, yes, structure and function, you can learn different tools to use to help elevate your practice. But what my ultimate goal is to teach a treatment philosophy and how all of those things come together without saying you have to do A, B, C, and D, because we know that one tool doesn't help everybody. And the same tool in two different practitioners' hands certainly is not the same tool. Um, so yes, while, while I do want to teach tools, I also want to teach a broader philosophy and a very inclusive philosophy um, as well, because, you know, co-treating and kind of this, this thing that you and I have been doing a lot over the course of the past year, I mean, this is where it's at. Like we said, like, I know we have a friendship and so that makes it more fun, but when you can, when you've got complicated cases and you can bounce these things off of different healthcare practitioners and everybody's kind of coming at it from a little bit different perspective. That's really where the magic's at. Right. Your, uh, the team approach and leaving your letters at the door resonates. And uh, you mentioned strength and conditioning specialists or coaches. I can't tell you how much I've learned from strength coaches. Right. It's changed my, the way I practice, uh, and without embracing that, uh, that education, uh, and, and their skill set, there's, I would, my, my uh, practice would be extremely limited. Yeah. Uh, so I, th I have to thank a lot of strength coaches for getting me to where I am. Yeah. I always say that I'm a much better clinician because I hang out with strength coaches. hundred percent. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, moving forward with uh, structure and function. And it, it, one thing I want to say to our listeners is that I'm not one that wants to sit down in front of a computer on a weekend. Uh, and I, um, at four times would force myself to sit down and, and get on structure and function and, and go through modules. And what I would find, I'm like, I'm going to do a half an hour <laughs> and I'm going to go to the gym and work out. And I would find myself on there for four, four to five hours, just going through each one and going through another one and learning. And the reason why it was great for me is that even though there's, there's science and we need the science in there, it was practical information where I can go and I can use this information uh, the next day uh, or the next time I, with my next patient. Uh, but also most importantly for new graduates, it helps you understand how to speak to a client, uh, in terms that they'll understand, uh, when it comes down to simply something as cupping compared to soft tissue work or, um, fascia and its relationship with the body and it's, and the nervous system. And it's like, these are things that we as graduates want to educate to a point where the lay person will just start getting glassy eyed. Now, 
So I want to thank you for that um, because it has changed the way I communicate going through your modules. Uh, so it's very special. You created an amazing platform with you and your team. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. And um, yeah, it was, that was like one of the best texts I got where I remember like it was a Saturday and you're like, I sat down for 30 minutes. I've been here for hours. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it is, it's great that, yeah, we've been again, another positive of COVID, right? We used to just host in-person classes and now, you know, we were able to put a lot of online education on you know, online. And so, um, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. And we tried to do it in a way that, you know, not to, um, I don't know, I I don't know James Patterson as an author or, and I get nothing from promoting his books, but if you, if you do any fiction reading, like one thing I love about reading James Patterson is that his book chapters are like two pages. Mm -hmm. So you just are like, Oh, I'm just going to read one more. Like, I want to see what happens next. Right. Cause you're like, it's just two or three pages. It's right. And before you know it, you've sat there for hours and you've read this book, right. Which is the whole point of a great book. And so we've kind of broken up the modules as well. Instead of like listening to them for two hours, it's like a six minute module or a 12 minute module. And you're like, well, I'm just going to do one more module. I'm just going to do one more module. And it kind of sucks you in. <laughs> That's right. You're giving up your secrets. Just keep going with it. You learn, you learn so much. Uh, and, and actually the flow of it all is so relevant and how, and, and like how it compounds on itself. It's, it's so appropriate. The foundation into, into more of the experience type of work uh, is very easy to understand. And the flow is, is perfect. Thank you. Let's talk about bridging the gap. Uh, I know I'm keeping you a little bit longer, uh, but thank you for your time. Sure. Uh, uh, who the hell writes a book? How, <laughs> how does one write a book? And why does one write a book? And is there a, is there an, another book coming? It, it was an awful process. I'm not going to lie. And I don't mean to squash people's dreams, but if you want it, like if you're thinking about writing a book, I'm, I'm here to tell you don't. <laughs> like just think about it and like, think about it for another year. And if you still want to write it, don't. And then think about it for like another year. And if you still want to do it after that, then maybe do it. And then like, just really, it, it was, um, it, it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my, in my career and in my life. And, um, yeah, it was really, really, really stressful. And, um, yeah. (laughs) But I'm glad I did it. I am glad that it's done. And, and I'll never forget, um, if, you know, if it wasn't for Kelly Sturette, if you guys know Kelly, he's a good, good friend of mine. And he really, I had talked to him about writing a book and he really is the one who gave me a lot of advice and a lot of insight and, you know, cause he pumps out books often and I'm thinking, dude, how do you do this? Right. And so he really gave me some great insight and some great thoughts. And so, you know, I always thank Kelly and, and he was the first person, I mean, when it got, when it came out, I mean, I had a text from him immediately. He's like, you're a unicorn. (laughs) So proud of you. Yeah, you certainly are. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it was just such a sweet, sweet text. Um, But yeah, I'm really glad that, that I got to write it and, and got to put those thoughts out on a paper. You know, you definitely open yourself up to critique, which is difficult. Um, and you just have to get to that point where you're like, okay, no, these are my thoughts. I'm going to put them down. I don't have to, nobody has to read them, right? right? Don't write a book for other people and don't write a book because you think you're going to make money off of it because neither of those things are true. (laughs) Write a book because it's something that you're incredibly passionate about and that you have thoughts that you feel the need to get down on paper. And by getting them down on paper, you're actually going to organize your own thoughts and your own philosophy much better. And by writing the book, that's what I did. Writing that book was for me. And as soon as it, of course, was published, I, there was 10 things that I wanted to change and expand on. And that's okay, right? That's why you have second and third editions and whatnot. And and there'll be some other editions coming out eventually. I can't believe I'm saying that. I'm sure my publisher is like, what? If she's here listening to this at all. Because I told her there will never be any other editions of this book. Um, but, But yeah, definitely do it for you. And because it helps you to organize your thoughts really for any other reason, if, if you, you know, yeah. it, I think at least for the type of book that I wrote right now, if you're writing a, a different type of book, then I'm sure it's different, but, yeah. but for me, that's really what it came about. So yeah, there, there'll be some other editions cause I do want to kind of expand on it. But for me, the book was the, the foundation of it. It's, 
I wanted it to be a living, breathing thing, which is why I'm in the process of putting every book chapter as an online course. So right now we have our chapter seven, eight, and nine done. 10 is about 60% done. And then I'm going to go back and do chapters one through six. So, um, but I wanted to get some strength and conditioning because the end of the book is little, is more strength and conditioning. The beginning of the book is more rehab. Mm -hmm. So wanted to get kind of some of the strength and conditioning concepts for the rehab professional down on paper and and into a video first. So yeah, we're really taking each chapter and expanding them into, into bigger courses because I knew the minute you publish a book, it's borderline irrelevant. Not a, that's a strong word, strong way to put it, but there's always things that are going to be outdated. Research is coming out all the time. So I wanted it, it to be a living, breathing thing through online education, which is what we're really doing. That would be for people like me, sit down and read a book. Uh, it's, it's taught, it's difficult to have an online education, uh, platform where I can go, okay, these are the three chapters I'm going to go through and it's going to be interactive. It's going to be alive. It's that's for, I think that's amazing. I can't wait. Can't wait for that to come out. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. We're like I said, we've got three chapters done, a fourth chapters in the works. My goal was by the end of 2021 to have all the chapters done, but that might be a lofty goal. So we'll see. With books, I, I hear, you know, I think a, a takeaway, and you can elaborate on this, would be don't write a book for credibility. Right. You better be credible before you write this book. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you're writing a book because you want people to think you know what you're talking about, I would suggest spending your time doing other things. Would you, <laughs> do you have anything you want to say about that? <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I mean, especially in this day and age, anyone can write a book and self-publish, right? Mm-hmm. Amazon has made it really easy to self-publish a book. Um, which is great. So, you know, it's just like anyone can have a social media account. Anyone can have a book. And so, yeah, I mean, think about, it it always comes to why, right? There's a book on that. Start with why. Why do you want to write a book? Do you want to write a book because you think it's going to make you famous or it's going to give you this sort of something, I don't know, that you're seeking or you think it's going to make you money or you think, right, I don't know what it is. Like I wanted to write a book because A, I didn't think there was a book that, right, there's great strength and conditioning books and there's great rehabilitation books. But to my knowledge, this was really the first book that blended those two concepts into one. Um, So I think that's one thing too, like make sure that you're putting out something that isn't already out there. I, you know, I didn't want to recreate the wheel of something that was already out there. Um, So I thought that there, there was a uniqueness to it. And B, I really wanted it to help to organize my thoughts and to help organize my philosophy, which I think it did. Thank you for that. It was uh, when I knew you had a book out there. I actually bought it. I didn't ask for it. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. St- it's in my office where we share, uh, but it's a wealth of information. So please source it, buy it, uh, research, research, Sue. Work. Uh, how can people find you outside of your Wikipedia page? <laughs> which that may or may not be accurate. I haven't looked at it in a while. Oh, goodness. Um, Well, yeah, the company website is structureandfunction.net. I am on Instagram and uh, the Twitterverse and Clubhouse, if you're on Clubhouse now, and LinkedIn and sort of all of the things. So definitely active on all of those platforms. So feel free to follow me. Um, Feel free to follow Structure and Function. And it's probably the the best way to, to stay in touch. I can't wait to listen to you on Clubhouse. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm sure you're going to make that fun. What's the one topic uh, project that you're going, you have going? Yeah. Drinks with therapists? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, we're going to drinks with therapists. So we're, we're going to do um, conversations uh, with cl- conversations and cocktails with clinicians is what we're going to call it. Love it. Where, yeah, we just kind of sit around and have a cocktail and, you know, talk about all of the fun things. So yeah, we'll have a variety of topics and that, that'll be on Clubhouse. So make sure you get on there, start following me. Um, we will have a structure and function room. I kind of, right now there's the Bridging the Gap um, club that I started on oh, there, nice. um, but I've put in a request to change the name to structure and function education. I jumped the gun a little bit on it. So we're going to have it all under structure and function. But if you start following me, you can either jump into the dry needling club or the um, Bridging the Gap club for now, and then we'll, we'll get everybody moved to the right club, hopefully. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you for sharing your information. It's, I mean, for what you've been through and your experiences to, to, um, to help other people uh, navigate their journey 
safely <laughs> and sometimes uncharted waters um, or what they may feel is aren't uncharted. No, there are people that have been through it that are open to helping. Uh, and, you know, coming full circle, a couple of takeaways from this conversation. I think the biggest thing that, not the biggest thing, but one thing that we keep reinforcing is listen to your client. Make sure you have that open heart and open mind. If you're talking too much, just shut up. Let them speak. Practice open-ended questions and really dive into what this person's life is and where they want it to go and how they're restricted and um, how what they're going through is, a, is inhibiting their quality of life, but not just theirs, their families and their loved ones as well. Anything you want to share as departing words for people to take away? No, I, I just think to say thank you to you, I think it's been really great to just reconnect with you, obviously on so many levels, personally and professionally, but you do have such a passion about mentoring, um, not only the newer clinician, but the clinician that's, that has had a lot of experience that is trying to kind of change their practice a bit. And so, yeah, just to thank you for being open to the multidisciplinary approach and to having me on the show and and for all that you're doing to give back to the profession, I think that it's really cool. It's really awesome to see as your middle school friend. <laughs> it's really awesome to see as your adult friend. And yeah, I'm just really proud to be able to call you my friend and colleague. So thanks for having me here today. Thanks, Sue. It's an honor to call you friend. Yeah. I appreciate you being on today. Thank you.